want to begin with a story that happened in Afghanistan, northern Afghanistan, 2001. Two in the morning, an isolated village was awoken by thud, thud, thud on the rooftops. They heard something coming down from the sky. They rushed outside. One man said, we thought we were being bombed, but when we looked around, we found packets of food. It was a U.S. military humanitarian operation giving food and supplies to a village isolated because of a drought to keep them alive. They bombarded them with supplies. So it wasn't a, a, an explosive bomb. You might say it was a love bomb. They got bombarded with support and supply and love from the United States. For the last five years, we've had a privilege of conducting on Valentine's Day weekend this love bomb. It's a concentrated effort to show love and support to children primarily who have been impacted by terrorism. We want to show them that there's a God in heaven who knows them, cares for them, loves them, and there are people abroad from far away who are praying for them and supporting them. When I was 10 years old, a song came out on the radio. It was sung by a girl named Jackie DeShannon. She didn't write the song, but she made it famous. And it goes like this. What the world needs now is love, sweet. What the needs is Gosh, you're hired. We have a choir here, Tam. Wow. So what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. Great lyrics. And I will tell you, I agree with those lyrics. I think what the world does need now is love, but a very particular kind of love. I think the world needs to see demonstrated God's love. What the world needs now is love, God's love. That's the only thing there's just too little of. The title of this message, as you can see in your worship folder, is The Explosive Power of Real Love. For some, that may sound a little too violent of a title, but I'll be honest with you, I really do want to blow some things up. I want to blow up hatred with God's love. I want to blow up oppression with God's love. I want to blow up Satan's lies with God's truth and God's love. I want to blow up indifference and apathy with God's love. But my concern is that some of us may experience what experts call compassion fatigue. It's a thing. It, it seems that in places that we get images or information about oppression, war, terrorism, causes that help alleviate that, uh, especially at a church that does so much all year long. You are so generous in uh, giving to Operation Christmas Child, sending shoeboxes around the world, helping uh, feed New Mexico kids, a number of projects. You're always good about that. There is this thing called compassion fatigue where you know about it, but the impact on your soul diminishes over time. I read an article in Politico 
a news source that said 17 years after September 11th, Americans don't care about terrorism anymore. See, it hasn't happened recently enough on our shores for us to be all up in arms about it, and we hear what goes on in other parts of the world. But I want you to consider it in terms of brothers and sisters that we have in other parts of the world. First time I went to Iraq for Reload Love five years ago, I met a man named Douglas. He's a clergyman, a pastor. Uh, he had an interesting story. That's what was compelling to me. Uh, he had been arrested by ISIS. Uh, they had imprisoned him. They beat him up. They tortured him. He had his teeth kicked out. Uh, he had to go elsewhere to recover. After he recovered, he said, I want to go back. I want to go back because there are children who need my help. I want to show these children what it is to love. And if possible, I want to love even my enemies who've done this to me. He was compelled by love. And he said something, I wrote it down, only God's love can transform lives. What the world needs now is love, God's love. In John chapter 13, which we're going to look at, let me, let me set the scene for you. It is, at this point, the very end of Jesus' earthly public ministry. It hasn't been a long one, only three years and a few months. But it's drawing to a close. Jesus knows it. He has predicted it. He knows that before him is the cross. It is the culmination of everything he has come for. And so he celebrates the Passover meal in an upper room in Jerusalem with his friends and even an enemy, Judas. There in that upper room, he demonstrated emblematically his love for them by getting up and washing his disciples' feet. So after demonstrating love, after confronting hatred in a man named Judas Iscariot, Judas gets up and leaves the room. Jesus knows what that means. Judas leaving the room means that he's going to set in motion, he will be the trigger that sets in motion everything that follows from his arrest, his betrayal, his arrest, his um, set of trials, even before Pontius Pilate, and eventually the crucifixion. So in the most intimate of settings, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 take place in one night at one table over one meal. It is Jesus' last will and testament to his disciples. Let's read the beginning part of it. John chapter 13, verse 31. So when he had gone out, that is, once Judas left the room to betray Jesus, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, speaking of his death, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come, so now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
What is he saying? Well, he acknowledges that the Father in heaven sent the Son, Jesus, on a rescue mission. And that rescue mission, at least phase one, is almost completed. Soon he will go to the cross, and by doing so, he will bring glory to the Father, whose plan it was to send his Son. And he will glorify his Father by his own obedience to going to the cross and being the atoning sacrifice for the sin of mankind. Then he will leave and go back home, back to heaven. Uh, the disciples were not keen on Jesus leaving them at all, and they were even less keen when he said, I'm going somewhere and you can't follow me. That means you can't come right now. Later on he will say, you can't go now, but later on you'll join me. So he is going back home, back to heaven. They can't come now. And so he gives a final commandment to them in these two last verses of the paragraph. A final set of instructions. And it is this instruction to love that you are fulfilling today. So we're going to look at this. It's a very simple outline. Jesus tells us what to do, how to do it, and why we should do it. Simple, right? Here's what to do. Here's what I mean by it. This is how you do it. And here's why it's important. So let's begin with the first, what we should do. And that is simply stated in one word, love. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now why does he say it's a commandment? Why should love ever be a commandment? Since when does love become a rule that you have to keep? Because someone will say, doesn't love just spontaneously rise from the human emotion and flow naturally out of us? Answer, are you nuts? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Anybody who's ever been in a family knows this. Anybody who's ever been married longer than one year knows this. Anybody who's ever had children knows this. Anybody who's ever lived next to an obnoxious neighbor knows this. Sometimes it is hard to show love, isn't it? It's hard to be committed to demonstrating love. We don't always feel like doing it. Warm fuzzies will not follow us all the days of our lives. And why is that? It is because of the fall. And I'm going all the way back to the beginning now. The fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Ever since the fall, there was a constitutional change in human nature. And so right after the fall it happened, we became self-oriented creatures. I don't just mean self-aware. I mean self-focused. We became self-centered. Our default mode, the natural human mode, is to be looking at ourselves and concerned with ourselves first and foremost. It's easy to prove. One out of every three pictures taken is a selfie. Every third picture is a selfie. Ninety-three million selfies are taken every single day. That's a preoccupation. Also, to call it a commandment, is Jesus' way of summing up all of the commandments ever given. You remember when he was asked, 
So what is the greatest commandment? He said that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So all the thou shalts and all the thou shalt nots can be encapsulated in a single command, love. Love then becomes the irreducible minimum whereby all of the other commandments are fulfilled. Think about it. If you love God, you won't have other gods before Him. If you love God, you will not take His name in vain. If you love people, you will honor your parents. If you love people, you won't kill them. If you love people, you won't steal. If you love people, you won't lie. If you love people, you won't covet what they have. It's all summed up in loving God and loving one another. That becomes then the greatest commandment. But he calls it a new commandment. I find this interesting. A new commandment I give you. Now, if you're Bible students, and I know most of you are, some of you are thinking, now wait a minute, this isn't really new. I've read this before, and I've read it in the Old Testament. And if you're thinking that, good on you. You're good Bible students. You're thinking of a passage in Leviticus chapter 19, which says, you will not bear a grudge against your neighbor, but you will love you, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So why does Jesus call it a new commandment? Well, it's interesting. The word he used for new was not the typical Greek word, neos would be the typical word, which means new in age or chronology. He uses the word kainos, which could be translated fresh. Hey, here's a fresh commandment. Or let me refresh this commandment. Let me move this commandment to love front and center and make that the hinge pin, the kingpin commandment, that if you just do this, all the others will be kept. It's a new commandment. It's not new information. It's just a new application of old information. It's renewed. But look a little closer. A new commandment I give to you that you love who? One another. How many people were in that upper room when Jesus said that? There were 11 other men. One left, Judas, so there's 11 left. So he says to the 11, love one another. He narrows their love down to just that circle. Why is that important? Well, what if Jesus would have said, here's a new commandment. Love everybody. Well, that's good, but I'm going to break that commandment the first stoplight I hit after church. Right? Won't you? Maybe not. Maybe. It's like um, in the cartoon Peanuts, Linus once said to Charlie Brown, I love the world. It's the people I can't stand. <laughs> now, yes, we are called to love the world. God loved the world. We are called even to love our enemies. But it's as if Jesus says, hey, boys, let's just tighten the circle a bit. Let's just begin here. Let's just start by loving one another. Now let's think about that in terms of brothers and sisters in Christ. And let's ask this question. Is there a tangible way to show love to suffering brothers and sisters, the persecuted church? And that's what the love bomb is all about. So 
What should we do? We should love one another. Let's, let's look at the second. How should we do it? Well, you'll notice, he says, you shall love one another as I have loved you. Oh, now wait a minute. Now he raises love up to a whole new standard, right? Now he's qualifying what it means to love one another. The, the comparative benchmark that we are to use in our love for each other is the kind of love that Jesus has. Love one another as I have loved you. What this means to me is that I am not at liberty to define this love. I can't set the parameters on it. I can't walk away from reading or hearing this command and say, well, I love people. I have warm, positive thoughts toward people. Brings up this question. How do you measure love? Well, this time of the year, people are going to measure love by um, words spoken, by embraces given, by flowers or chocolate or those goofy-looking pajamagram things or a number of external measurements of their love. If you just say, I love you, over and over and over again, that's how I measure my love. You know, uh, the longest love letter ever written, it's called the long longest love letter, was written in 1875. A man in Paris by the name of Marcel de la Clure wrote the words, I love you, to his girlfriend, Magdalene de Villalore. He wrote, I love you, 1,875,000 times. The idea was a thousand times the calendar year 1875. So 1,875,000. I'm thinking if I'm going page by page, I get it. I don't, I don't need to read to the end, right? Same thing over and over again. Now some would go, oh, how romantic. Don't get fired up. He had his secretary do it. <laughs> but that goes on record as a measurement of his love. Longest love letter ever written. Others would say they measure love by a kiss. So you want to know the longest kiss on record? I knew you'd say yes. July 11th, 2005, a London couple locked lips for 31 hours and 30 minutes. Now, I don't think he had a secretary do that. <laughs> but that's gross. There's nothing romantic about that at all. They're passing on whatever each other has. The new standard of love is this. I want you to love one another, but I want you to love one another like I love you. Do it this way. Do it like I love. Now, in the same setting, same room, same night, in chapter 15 of John, he records it. Verses 12 and 13, Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, listen to what he says after that. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friend. What's, what's he talking about? The cross. He's talking about the ultimate demonstration of God's love for people, the cross that he is about to undertake. So then he further sets the meaning of what it is to love one another as I have loved you. So now we understand that true love 
ought to be sacrificial love. Greater, one is no, greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friend. So Jesus' love is sacrificial love. Let me add to that. His love is not only sacrificial love. Would you agree his love is unconditional love? There's no, there's no you know, you got to do this first kind of a thing. He's on the cross uh, hours later. And his enemies are shouting at him, persecuting him, calling him names, spitting on him. Um, they stapled him to a cross. I would have said, Father, get him. He said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. So it is unconditional love. Let me add to that. His love is never-ending and non-reciprocal love for Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 5, that he loved us when we were still what? Sinners. He didn't love us when we loved him. He didn't love us because we were wonderful and wanted him. He loved us when we wanted nothing at all to do with him. He still loved us. So his love is sacrificial, unconditional, never-ending, non-reciprocal love. Love one another as I have loved you. Now you hear that and you think, that's impossible. I can't do that. He can do that. He's Jesus. But I can't do that. Yet he tells me to do it. So I'm going to answer that by saying, you're right. You can't do that on your own. You can't do that. But last time I checked, you were in Christ. And because you are in Christ, you have something that you never had apart from Christ. You have a reservoir of love that never runs out. You go, oh, I never knew that existed. Oh, you do. You have it. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, God has poured out His love into our hearts by His Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Simply this. If God's love can flow into our lives then it can do what? Flow out of our lives. Which means, if God's love is always flowing in, and it always is, by the way, His mercies are new every, every morning. So they, it's not like God says, I got nothing left. I have no more love to give you. Go away. It's never ending. That means if He pours His love out into our hearts, we can never say, I got nothing left. We always have that reservoir. We have been given by God a great capacity to love, which should mean nobody in our circle should be starved of love. Malcolm Muggeridge once said, the greatest evil is the lack of love. So now we have what we should do, love one another. We now know how we are to do that by His commandment, as I have loved you. Now, why should we do it? Verse 35 tells us why. Very simple. By this. By what? By this kind of love. By this authentic, real, self-sacrificing, uh, non-reciprocal, never-ending, unconditional love. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, by demonstrating this self-sacrificing kind of love to each other, the world will sit up and take notice. They'll, they'll look at that and go, I want me some of that. The world will know that you are my disciples. 
Authentic love that cares deeply for the needs of others validates your profession of faith. It shows that you're for real, man. In chapter 17, following after Jesus' conversation with them in that room, he's, he's walking to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays something for his disciples. He prays for their love and their unity and he says, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now put these two statements together. He says to them, by this all will know that you're my disciples, if you love. And then to the Father, in praying for them to love one another, he says, that the world may believe that you sent me. So love then is a billboard that attracts passers-by and draws them to the Savior. That's how powerful it is. But here's something interesting. I read these passages and I mulled them over and looked at them and the way Jesus says this, it's as if he is giving the world permission to judge us. The world will know. The world's going to see. Others are going to know that you follow me and believe in me and that it's real. He's giving the world permission. It's like he opens the door and he says, hey, unbeliever, come check these people out. Look at how they're loving. Now, why does he do this? Because it is love that makes God visible. Our love makes God visible. See, God is invisible to this world. Nobody's seen him. Uh, it poses a problem for us in evangelism. We tell people, God loves you. There's a God in heaven. Jesus died for you. And they're kind of going, I've never seen God. So, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote another book called First John. Remember that book? So here's what I want you to picture. John is in the room, right, among the eleven. He's listening to this. And then Jesus dies, and then he rises, and then he ascends. And then years go by, so he processes this. And this is what John writes a few years later. First John chapter 4, verse 12. John says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. In other words, he said what I just explained. Our love of one another, like this, authenticates our profession of faith and makes visible to others the God who is invisible. He makes God known, makes God seen. That's why we're called the body of Christ. In one sense, we're called the body of Christ because Jesus physically left, his body left, so we are left here, so we become his hands, his feet, his mouth, his embrace, his loving expression. We are the body of Christ. I've always loved the story about the poor boy who uh, was in a large city peering in through a window of a store. His clothes were tattered, his shoes were beat up, and a wealthy, believing woman walked by and noticed the young boy, felt sorry for him, grabbed him by the hand, took him inside the store, asked for a little pitcher of water, washed his feet, bought him socks, shoes, change of clothes, was getting ready to leave and she felt a little tug on her coat and the little boy looked up and said, excuse me, are you God's wife? <laughs> you know, it makes sense to a little kid. That kind of selfless love, that expression of authentic love, you must be related to God. That is the telltale sign that we are related to Him. 
is this kind of love. John Stott writes, We cannot proclaim the gospel of God's love with any degree of integrity if we don't exhibit it in our love for others. I'll restate that my own way. Love will supercharge our evangelism. You can tell people stuff all day long. It can be so convincing, so amazing. You're so knowledgeable. But authentic acts of love supercharge your evangelism. How else are people going to know that you're related to Him? How, how are people going to know you're a Christian? Well, I have a bumper sticker. I'm not opposed to bumper stickers, but I will say this. If you have a bumper sticker on your car, you better obey all traffic laws. Because you have that sweet bumper sticker, and then you pass and cut them off and give them that gesture, and, and that bumper sticker kind of goes out the window, right? How are they going to know? Well, they're going to know by my vast theological knowledge. I will dazzle them with my apologetic purview and my knowledge. Nobody cares. Honestly, you've heard it said, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. So you can know stuff, good. But now add what you know with how you show what you know. And that is by love. There's a, there's a tradition that has been passed down historically that John, the author of the Gospel of John and 1 John, that he pastored a church, the church Paul founded in Ephesus. He got very old, and when he got really old, he couldn't walk, and so his, his disciples um, carried him from place to place. They would carry him to the Christian meetings. And... Uh, he would speak, but as he got older and older and he was in an invalid state, he didn't say much. So it is reported that all he would say at the end of his life is one sentence. Little children, love one another. They take him home, they bring him back next week. Little children, love one another. Now somebody had to like follow up with a real sermon after that. You're thinking, well, I, we, there's hope for you, Skip. As you get older, it might mean that your sermons would be shorter. Don't, don't bank on it. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. And um, so, you know, this would happen regularly. So, you know, everybody sort of anticipated it. He'd say, little children. I know, I know. Love one another. Well, one of the young disciples came to him and said, why do you keep saying that? And John said, because it is the Lord's command. And if this alone be done... It's enough. It's enough. Hey, here's a thought. Why don't you and I start evaluating our lives by love? Not how many people love you, but how many people you love. Well, look how many followers I have on Facebook. How many people do you love? Lip service without life service is empty religion. But lip, lip service combined with life service is impressive and true devotion. So what the world needs now is love. God's love. Thank you for showing God's love to each other and to each other's, meaning the body of Christ around the world. Thank you for that. 
Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you, Lord, that your love for us is daily. You, you love us so deeply. Um, we think back to the days when we really didn't think about you or care for you very much at all. We really wanted nothing to do with you personally. Maybe we did organizationally, religiously, uh, perfunctorily, but not personally. And yet even then when we were saying go away, you came closer and you showered us with your love and you got our attention and we are now yours. So thank you for what you've done to transform us. And now I pray, Lord, that that transformation would be exhibited in our love for our wives and our husbands and our children and other believers. A sacrificial love, a willingness, Lord, to go the distance even when we don't feel like it, which is quite often because the default human natural position is not to love others, but to love ourselves. And yet you told others to love, to love others like we love ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for this great church, these people, a happy people, people in love with Jesus, people in love with others, people in love with your word, people who take the, t uh, the challenge when it's given, like today and other days, showing extravagant love to children by giving them toys at Christmas time, feeding families, and reaching out to build playgrounds in unknown parts of the world. Give us your grace, Lord be fully transformed by your love in Jesus name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church/give. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.